So, I, you know, I would say, uh, just speaking for myself, being transparent a little bit, what a, week, what a tumultuous week of emotion uh, this week. Um, you know, uh, the uh, two uh, officers in Westerville, that was really uh, something. You know, no, no need to describe it. We can all use, we can all understand it and all that. And, and, uh, and then sort of like dealing with that and thinking about that and uh, just all that goes with that. Then on top of it, this horrific uh, tragedy in Florida, on top of it, and then all the personal things going on, you know, in people's lives. How, how much can a person take, right? How long, oh Lord, I, I really is, uh, I think, an undercurrent in our minds. Yes, we trust God, we love God, and, uh, you know, and, and all of that. And, uh, but, uh, you know, it's important that, that as Messiah followers, as believers, that we don't uh, first, on one end of this scale, say, um, well, you know, we're not of this world. That's how life is. Bad things happen. You know, it's because of sin. I got the theology figured out. One day it'll be over. Boop. It's okay. No need to uh, dwell on it. It's, you know, it's the way of the world. It's wickedness. Uh, I think we need to be careful that we stay away from that because, you know, I, you know, in the book of Isaiah, toward the end in chapter uh, 63, you know, there's a verse that says, um, surely they are my people, sons who will not deal falsely. So he became their savior. Then it says, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. God uh, is, you know, in some respects, God is a rock. In some respects. Meaning we can count on him, you know, his character, his nature doesn't change. But he's not a rock as, as if nothing uh, affects him. That's bad theology right there, okay? I, I, things affect God, it's quite clear uh, from the scriptures. In this and many other passages, I, when God says, you know, we weep with those who weep, God weeps with those who weep, <laughs> you know? I, not only that, but... I, we read about Yeshua, right? The, the ultimate uh, example of uh, God caring about this world that he sent the Messiah, who you can read it in Hebrews chapter 2 and in Hebrews chapter 4, experienced life as we experience it with all of its woes and, and hardships. You know, when Yeshua came, it wasn't like he, it was like this. Well, okay, now I'll be human for this period. Let's get this over with so I can go back to where I come from. That's not uh, how that works at all. That Yeshua experienced pain, sorrow, regret, remorse, all of it. Grief, all of it. Read the end of Hebrews, Hebrews of Matthew chapter 23 the great lament of Yeshua where he weeps over Jerusalem. It, he, like real tears. So think of yourself when you weep over something sad, how you feel on the inside. That's how Yeshua felt. He really felt sad of what happened to Israel. And here, of course, the very same Hashem, the very same Adonai, the very same Lord is afflicted 
when his people are afflicted. And may I suggest it's not only his people meaning Israel or covenant people, but his people meaning people created in the image and likeness of God. So we have to be careful not to just slough it off as I understand the theology and that's just how it is. Then on the other hand, we don't want to get stuck in the quicksand and see no hope in that, oh, what just a lousy, stinking world we live in and oh, it's, uh, what's going to be and how could it... No, 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 no. That, that we are those who have hope. We experience real life. We have a living hope, right? A hope that is alive today, that looks to the future, but we experience real life. We do not live in denial. We don't live in denial. That's not godliness, to live in denial. Say, oh, it doesn't hurt. Praise the Lord. It's another day down to one day closer to the end. You know, that's not the picture that we have of God. And so we need to be sad when sad things happen, yet we are not those who have lost hope. Our hope is in God. And hopefully, throughout our lives, we cultivate a relationship with God in which God is not on the hot seat every time something happens, but that our trust and our faith is in the Lord and that he's doing something bigger than we can even understand and some things we just don't understand. And so, uh, very important that we uh, demonstrate faith like that. And it just so happens that today's message, right right in order there in Genesis... I was going to do something different today, but I thought, no, we're going to stick with the program, but we'll include some other things in it. And that is in Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham is challenged with the greatest test of his life. You know it. It's where Abraham goes up the mountain with Isaac, right? Very famous, uh, very famous passage. So uh, it's going to take us a few weeks to get through it. Uh, because there's different, shall I just say, angles to this uh, text uh, that, we want, uh, that we want to understand. Today, we'll look at it basically as it is right there, right there in the text and be able to relate a little bit to uh, Abraham and, and Isaac in it. It's interesting that this is a, such a famous passage that uh, in rabbinic literature, uh, it has a uh, great meaning. It's called the Akedah. Uh, that's A-K-E-D-A-H in English. Uh, the Akedah, which means the binding. The, the binding of Isaac. Uh, and it's interesting, in the rabbinic literature, now when I say rabbinic literature, that means literature that at least was written down uh, after 200 A.D., and uh, the, what I'm thinking of is literature written, uh, you know, around 400, 500 uh, different midrash that give uh, embellishments to the scriptures and understanding them. There, Isaac uh, is the focus uh, in the rabbinic literature. And then, you know, there's layers of rabbinic literature. Then you have other literature written, you know, around the time of a thousand, then in the Middle Ages, and that was really the... The, during the Middle Ages was the time of, you know, Rashi and Maimonides, the people who are really looked to today, uh, believe it or not, that from that, that long ago, you know, as the preeminent uh, sages. 
Uh, Isaac uh, is the focus as the atonement of Israel, uh, interestingly enough. Uh, so the rabbis have Isaac as the focus. Now, in the Brit Hadashah, in the New Covenant, Abraham is the focus. You know, the faith of Abraham, the faithfulness of Abraham. So in James and in Hebrews, and it's alluded to in probably 20 other passages uh, by just uh, echoes or similar words, you know. Uh, and then here in Genesis, it seems that really God is the, the focus. Uh, because at the end of the story, it's a, we come to understand it's about the faithfulness of God. So it's interesting that you have rabbinic literature, you have the New Covenant, and you have the text itself. Uh, and so we have God, we have Abraham, and we have Isaac as the focus. In the, and so it's important that we understand uh, those literatures. Uh, uh, the New Covenant certainly gives us a divine understanding uh, of it, as well as Genesis. But the rabbinic literature also is helpful because nobody has thought about this text more uh, than those rabbis over the course of thousands of years. So there's something to be gained by what they have to say. So over the next couple of weeks, we want to uh, understand that. Okay, so right now, let's just take a look at the text, and then we're going to make uh, some applications uh, to our lives, I think, that, that fit uh, our current events. Okay, so it says here at the beginning of chapter 22, now it came about after these things... And so after these things is a big thing. We don't know exactly what that, how many years that is, but it's obviously Isaac is, uh, you know, uh, uh, is alive. So it's after Isaac's born. Isaac is not a young child. And uh, Jewish tradition has him at 37 years old, and it has to do with some of the math. But nobody knows exactly, and that's not really the point. Okay? So it's after Isaac's born. It's after... And what I would say uh, is the point, by the way, is it's after this unbelievable miracle that took place in he and Sarah's life. He has witnessed a miracle, the miracle of miracles and that he was 100 and she was 90 and they had a baby. I mean, that kind of tops, uh, you know, the miracle chart, yeah, you, you know? So uh, he has had that experience with God. We have to remember that he's had that experience with God, okay? There's something else we need to remember. We need to remember that he had a big heartbreak. He had a big heartbreak. And that is, he had to send away Ishmael, right? Uh, Hagar and Ishmael. That is no small thing. He loved Ishmael very much, okay? Uh, he was distressed over it, the Bible says. We covered that already. So remember those two things. That he's already lost one son in terms of relationship and he's experienced an unbelievable miracle of the promise of God, okay? So it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. So we know right away that this was a challenge. God tested Abraham, okay? Every reader that has ever read about this event knows that this was a test uh, upon Abraham. In other words, the first recipients of Genesis was not Abraham. In other words, uh, you know, it was the children of Israel later on, after they came out of Egypt and after, uh, after uh, Mount Sinai. And so uh, Moses, or the, the narrator, says, 
God tested Abraham. So, so, in other words, it's not like, thus saith the Lord, Abraham, this is a test, you know? But we're told this is a test. That's important to understand because you have to look at this in its whole, not just how could God say, go and sacrifice your son. We have to understand it as part of a whole, uh, as, part of a, uh, as part of a whole, okay? So he says, here I am. And he said, God says, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Now, by saying, take your son, your only son, whom you love, it slows, your son Isaac, it slows down the story. And we're forced to contemplate this. He doesn't just say, take Isaac, go up the mountain, you'll see what happens, right? He says, your son, your only son, the son whom you love. So we're supposed to get that, that this is really quite a moment, quite a test of faith for Abraham, okay? In other words, we read it, we read it slowly, we're like shaking our heads. Wow. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountain of which I will tell you. So this is, this is something that Abraham nor anyone else could ever understand. What kind of, what, how could this happen? This is not how I understand how God acts. I don't get it. Now, verse 2, where he says this, contains a few interesting little tidbits of interesting things uh, about, uh, about Hebrew. Okay? And that's this. First of all, it has a little phrase, kachna, kachna. And that is when he says, take now. Take, take, take now. It's actually nigh. Kach means take. But na, the na part is like, uh, please. Like, please take. Like, you know, I'm begging you to take. It's used in a few other places uh, in uh, the Tanakh. But every other time it's used of a person begging, for example, Jonah begs God to take his life. Use the same phrase. Jacob begs Esau to take the gift. It's always used of people. It's the only place here where God is, is saying, when he says, take now your own, it's please, I'm begging you to take now your son. There's a lot of passion in this text, okay, from both Abraham and from God. It is like a difficult, I would suggest, I'm just, I would suggest that it is a difficult conversation that God is having with Abraham as well as a way as Abraham receives it, okay? There's something else here. Uh, it also says, when he says, and go to the land of Moriah, this is lech lecha, go. Yes, go, an imperative, go, okay? Now, we only read that in one other place in the Tanakh, and God is talking to Abraham when he says it. And where is it? It's the very first words that we read that God says to Abraham. And you know what's interesting? If you flip back, this may be more than two weeks. That's all right. 
Uh, if you flip back to Genesis chapter 12, it's interesting just the way it's written. It says, the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, like from your land. And then it says, and from your relatives and from your father's house. In other words, it's similar to what we read at the beginning of chapter 22. In chapter 12, it slows down and we need to contemplate the cost here of leave your country, leave your relatives, leave your father's house, and go. In chapter 22, God says to him, take your son, take your beloved son, the son whom you love, Isaac, go. Very interesting. So chapters 12 and 22 are, in a way, almost like bookends, because after chapter 22, we're coming really toward the end of Abraham's life. And so from chapter 12 to 22 is like the discipleship of Abraham. And we see now in chapter 22 this moment of just unbelievable faithfulness, of fantastic faithfulness on the part of, of Abraham. Uh, and, uh, and so it's important to see that God, in both occasions, tells Abraham, you need to follow my ways and I will bless you. We see here that in Abraham's life, in chapter 12 and in chapter 22, the two sides of faith and faithfulness. That Abraham's uh, faith is demonstrated in his faithfulness. We see it in chapter 22. Abraham's faith is demonstrated in his faithfulness. Very similar in that regard. All right. And so uh, we see here that God asks him to do the impossible. All right. So Abraham, we read now in verse uh, three. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So, you know, verse 3 could be like uh, multiple chapters in a book. Uh, we don't read what Abraham is thinking. We don't read what Abraham is feeling. Uh, we don't, you know, in chapter 18, he has this long conversation with God about justice and sparing the city. And we talked about it and everyone talks about in chapter 18, how you see Abraham, uh, you know, come, let us reason together. But here, Abraham is silent. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I might say, come again. You know, what, uh, what's happening? So the point is, is that we simply see here, Abraham is just absolutely, he hears the voice of God. He follows what God, what God says. Yet he doesn't know the exact outcome. He doesn't know exactly how this is going to play out. But what he knows is, is that I am going to do what God says. After all, God made this promise to me. God gave me a child at age 100. I don't understand what's going on, but I'm going to believe the word of God. It's basically what what he does in verse 3. Now on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes 
and saw the place from a distance. Okay, There's, We could say some things about that, but we're going to keep going. And Abraham said uh, to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship and return to you. So, unfortunately, the term for lad is ambiguous. It doesn't mean boy. It doesn't mean necessarily like older man. So we don't know exactly how old Isaac is. And I will suggest maybe it's ambiguous on purpose. But we will worship and we will return to you. So one thing that we know already that Abraham knows is that he's coming back with Isaac. One way or the other, he's coming back with, and Isaac will be alive when he returns. But he doesn't know exactly how this is going to work out. Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Okay, so again, we see just uh, the text doesn't seem to want to dwell on what Abraham is thinking as he's cutting the wood and all that, but he basically does what God told him to do, according to the text. We could spend, we could talk all into the wee hours of the morning about how Abraham is feeling, but let's just stick to what this says for now, okay? All right. Okay, so uh, the two of them walked on together. Now, Isaac speaks here, and he says, my father, here I am, my son, and he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering?" Okay, so Isaac is asking a good question, right? A normal question. Okay, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? We're going to go worship and we're going to return. This is really going to be a great father and son moment for us. And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So Abraham says, God will provide the lamb. I don't know how. I don't know in what way. And I don't understand, that's for sure, as we see in Abraham's actions, but he has this trust in, uh, in God. So it says again, the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. He does exactly what God says to do when God spoke earlier, okay? He doesn't say, now let's wait for the lamb, right? Then Abraham stretched out his hand, took the knife, and by the way, what's interesting about this is, is that when you read later on about how they did burnt offerings, you don't read anything about, and then the priest took a knife, and then, you know, and then he just killed the lamb. You don't, you don't read that terminology, so it's kind of just kind of interesting how here, um, uh, well, it doesn't say much about how Abraham, um, you know, how he cut the wood or how he built the, the, um, uh, the altar. The text does seem to slow down again, and it doesn't say uh, Abraham uh, went to kill Isaac. But it's described, he stretched out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. It's like... Really, like, get this. This is what Abraham was doing. But the angel of the Lord called to him 
in the nick of time, right, from heaven, and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. By saying, Abraham, Abraham, this is, whoa, Abraham. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Right? So isn't it interesting that uh, we have this angel that speaks to Hagar. It says, Hagar, Hagar, the son will live, Ishmael, you know? And here we see the angel says, Abraham, Abraham, don't stretch out your hand against him. Nothing's going to happen to him, right? For now I know that you fear uh, God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. One thing we learn here is uh, evidently the definition of fearing God, according to this angel, is being wholly devoted to God uh, and uh, being 100%, uh, as we would say, sold out for the Lord, I no questions asked. I will follow you wherever you bring me, and I will be obedient to you in whatever you say. Evidently, when he says, For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Remember what we said last time? Abraham does not control this situation. Remember we said that about Sarah and Abraham last time? Every time Sarah and Abraham tried to control the situation in order to bring about the will of God, it backfired and God saved the day, right? Here, Abraham does not supply his own lamb, and we see the tremendous testimony of Abraham's faith, faithfulness, and the faithfulness of a God. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, Behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Now there's an obvious question here, which makes for great discussion and midrash and rabbinic thinking. It, doesn't, it wasn't a lamb. It wasn't a lamb, right? Who will supply the lamb? Oh, Abraham says God will supply the lamb. But we see it's not a lamb. It's a ram. Why is it a ram? So this is kind of interesting. Well, rams, when you, when you do your word study on everywhere, it talks about rams, you'll see that rams can be a burnt offering as well as lambs. But where rams kind of stand out on their own is when priests are ordained and on the Day of Atonement. Isn't that kind of interesting? That I, I, when priests are ordained and on the Day of Atonement. I think that for our purposes, I, I just thinking about the idea that the Day of Atonement is, you know, really uh, very interesting. That you have almost like a foreshadowing of, of the concept of, of atonement and substitutionary atonement, you know, that God provides, the, you know, uh, Isaac doesn't die. God provides the, the, not a lamb, but a ram, which again 
you know, as a burnt offering, a, uh, you know, a sin offering later on, we read. So it's just kind of interesting that we have the ram. And now we will learn next time about how this, this is very important in Judaism. That's why we blow a ram's horn on Rosh Hashanah. That's why we read this chapter on the second day of Rosh Hashanah. This whole idea uh, of the binding of Isaac and what it means in the rabbinic literature is, uh, is amazing because it's almost a, a, like a substitutionary a, a, a atonement understanding. And like many things, when our ancestors read the Torah, they're in the right ballpark. But you see, without Yeshua, it kind of misses. You know, it kind of misses. Uh, and so what you end up with is something called Zahut Avot, or the merits of the fathers. Uh, the idea of substitutionary atonement here is that uh, it is because Abraham did what he said, but mostly because Isaac was bound on the altar that later on atonement is made for Israel. And of course, that misses the point, uh, uh, sadly. But in the pages of the New Covenant, there are many, many passages that uh, speak of this. Uh, but we're going to save that for, our, for next time, for next week. So you've got to come back next week. All right. Uh, but what I wanted to say uh, just in the next couple of minutes is this. Uh, that, yes, uh, this ultimately, yes, points to Yeshua. This does point to us of the faithfulness of God. Because notice what happens at the end. God, then Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. I suggest the Lord will see is a better translation. Okay? Your eyes see. The Lord will see. And as a result, he provides. He sees the need and he provides. But it really is the Lord will see. And as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, the Lord will be seen, I would suggest. the Lord. In other words, a testimony. It's his testimony. Okay? Uh, and so Abraham calls the name of the place, the Lord sees and the Lord provides. The Lord has seen the need. Yes, he sent Yeshua uh, uh, to die for our sins and, uh, and to be raised from the dead. And isn't it true for you who uh, know Messiah, if you're familiar with the new covenant, when you read the very beginning of chapter 22, when he says, bring your son, your only son, the son whom you love. You're thinking, oh, John 3.16 and other assorted passages like it like in 1 John and several different places, right? Uh, yes, indeed, that chapter 22 of Genesis is a backdrop, it seems, for an understanding of the death and resurrection of the Messiah. We will see next time about how resurrection is a Jewish teaching and how the binding of Isaac plays such an important role in it. But there's something else for us to get here. Okay, And that is that Abraham did not know how God was going to provide. But So what does he do? He just does what God wants him to do. The text is very clear. Okay, God says, take the wood. I took the wood. Cut the wood. He cuts the wood. Go up with Isaac. He goes up with Isaac. In other words, he puts one foot in front of the other and follows the Lord 
even though it's got to be the most, diffi- the most difficult thing he's ever done in his entire life. But he, he walks, you know, in years ago, uh, we used to call ourselves when we would, you know, bringing the good news of Yeshua to Jewish people is not always a, uh, um, is not always well received, right? So we would refer to ourselves as plotters, P-L-O-D-D-E-R-S, meaning we just keep going, just keep going, just be faithful. God will give, just be faithful, you know, don't try to manipulate the outcome, don't try to control it. You just do what God says to do. And that is indeed what Abraham does here. We live in a world where things happen that we don't understand. We don't, we don't understand uh, uh, a lot of what God is doing in this world. We don't. We may try to fit it into a theology, but when it just comes to a visceral or emotional response to humanity and what's going on, we wonder, how long, oh Lord, right? You know, um, Habakkuk reminds me in a way of Abraham, except Habakkuk wore his emotions on his sleeve, right? Habakkuk, the prophet, which functions more like wisdom literature, frankly, says, how long, oh Lord, how long are you going to let all this happen? How long is there going to be violence? That's what he says. That's what he says in Habakkuk in the first year. How long are you going to let all this violence go and people don't obey your word? And he's talking about Israel. He's not talking about the, you know, uh, the foreign nations. Within the nation, it's a, how long are you going to let this go, right? And he has this big argument with God, right? Big argument. And God is, is explaining it. He says, no, you can't do that. That's not your nature. Remember what he says? We don't have time to turn to it. God says, I'm going to do something spectacular in your day that you're not going to believe. And he says, I'm going to take your fiercest, worst enemy, and there I'm going to use them to judge you. And Habakkuk says, no way. That is not your nature. That is not what you could ever do. Okay? Then at the end of the argument, Habakkuk basically, uh, Habakkuk basically says, I think I have overstepped uh, my boundaries in uh, conversing with God. So I'm going to hang on for dear life uh, when he reproves me, okay? Then God answers him, and he gives him this vision. And the vision is really of the ultimate, uh, the ultimate uh, judgment on the enemy, you know, on the Chaldeans, right? But he says this, and this is what's so interesting about it. He says, but it isn't going to happen yet. Just like Abraham going up that mountain, you know? Uh, uh, why couldn't God just test him in a moment of time? Why did he have to go through this agonizing, uh, this agonizing walk uh, to uh, Moriah? And so God says to Habakkuk, the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal. It will not fail, though it tarries, wait for it. It will certainly come. It will not delay. So he says two things. He says, it's coming, it won't delay, and it's running, toward, it's hastening fast toward the goal, and it's not going to fail. But though it may tarry, in other words, though from your point of view, it seems to be taking forever, wait for it, okay? And then we have a very fam- the very famous verse. You may not know this is where it comes from. He Then he says, behold, as for the proud one, 
His soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. That's where this is. Okay? So what he's saying is this, and this is how it relates to Abraham here. He's saying, I'm going to bring the end. I'm going to bring the judgment on the enemies. I'm... But in, the, but in the meantime, the Chaldeans are going to come. There's going to be tumult. There's going to be uh, things that you're not going to be able to understand that are going to happen in this world. And it happens because these people are godless and sinful. But you don't under, you're not going to get the whole thing. But in the meantime, you who are just, walk in faithfulness. Walk in covenant faithfulness. And may I suggest, the reason that we read that so much in the New Covenant is because when Yeshua came, and then some years after the resurrection and the, the ascension to the right hand of the Father, he did not return in the timetable that even Paul thought. And in a way, you have the same understanding here, that until Yeshua returns, the just shall live by faith. By faith and faithfulness, you can do the word study yourself in Hebrew and in Greek. Faith and faithfulness are two sides of the same coin. It's not just the just shall live by saying a prayer, you know, and saying, I believe in Yeshua. It's the just shall give their lives to God uh, and belong to him and live according to covenant faithfulness. That is what God is saying to Habakkuk. And at the end of the day, how does Habakkuk receive this? Does he say, oh, no, Lord, you mean it's still going to happen? When's it going to come? No, that's not how he understands it now. He has a whole transformation. Look at the end of the book. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, those are all really bad things. Bad things. Famine even death, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hind's feet and makes me walk on my high places. Meaning, I live on a precarious perch. It's like, it's like a picture of a cliff with a little branch hanging out you know, into a deep chasm. And we're perched on that little branch hanging out from that cliff. And he says, my feet are secure because my trust is in God no matter what happens. He's singing a different song from the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 1. Why? Because he has this experience with God. Why? Because God has spoken to him that this is not the end, Habakkuk. And indeed, God has spoken to Abraham. And Abraham was able to understand that I know that this is not the end, that somehow Isaac is coming back with me. This is why Abraham was able to endure the pain of even the thought of losing Isaac. Yet he knew uh, that God uh, gives, God takes, but somehow God gives back again. That was how Abraham knew it. He knew that at the end of the day, this was going to work out. And so for us, we may look around us and say, 
why are these horrible things happening in our world? Yes, because of sin, because of rebellion, and, and so, but where is God in all of this? Well, we know from the scriptures, from going all the way to Peter's first speeches, that we have not yet gotten to the time of the refreshing and restoration of all things. And that we're living in this period of time where God is calling us out to be a remnant, but in the midst of, the, of, the, of bad things that, that take place in this world. And so, therefore, may we be like Abraham. May we realize and know God sees. He sees you. He sees whatever's going on in our community, in our country, and in our world. And yes, he provides. He provides in Yeshua. That's the lifeboat. Get in it. Live in it. Our trust and our faith and our future is in him. I'm out of time now, but go read 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Read about the, first, the next 10 verses or so. And you'll see that we have a living hope, even though bad times may be upon us now. Let us not lose heart. Let us not lose faith. Let us see this as an opportunity to demonstrate faith and trust in God and give our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers a reason to hope. That is indeed what Abraham has done for us. Let's pray. The Lord God, thank you for this great passage of Scripture. Lord, may we be people uh, whose faith and trust is in you. Lord uh, God, we may not understand all the circumstances of our lives, but we know that our faith is based on your word, not what we, not what we see, not on the circumstances uh, and uh, you know, the bad things that happen in this world. But we thank you, Lord, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Lord God, we do pray for our community. We pray for our country. We pray for our world, Lord, to turn to you, Lord, to be able to get in the lifeboat and to be able to have hope. And Lord, we know the doorway of the hope is repentance, is turning to you, forsaking uh, our own flesh and our own pride and, uh, and, and, and the sins that, uh, that, that bind us uh, to this world. But Lord, may our eyes be fixed on Yeshua, the author and finisher of our faith, Lord. And God, we thank you. And we thank you, God, that uh, indeed we do have a hope in Messiah Yeshua. And thank you, Lord, that you are Adonai Yirah, the God who sees, the God who provides. Amen.